to very loosely quote the 1990s hip-hop artist LL Cool J. Don't call it a revival. They've been trying it for years. Of course, in this episode, we'll find that there may be a few more reasons we shouldn't call the events in Asbury a revival. Hey everyone, my name is Ray Burns, and even though my intros seem to get cornier with each episode, I still want to equip Christians to think biblically about every area of life, including revivals, so that they can keep growing in spiritual maturity. The Asbury Revival is a huge topic in Christian circles right now. When some talk about it, they claim that it's a work of God that carries the hope of America finally turning back to their creator. For others, it's simply a man-centric event that only appeals to emotions. Now, in this episode, what I want us to do is to test what really happened and is happening at Asbury University and let that guide us to what we should conclude instead of our hopes, our fears, or what our expectations make us want to believe. Now, as you can tell by the episode length, this is not a short discussion. So I do want to start this off by saying that there will be timestamps down in the show notes so that you can jump in or revisit whatever part of the conversation you would like to. I also want to say, especially for those of you who this may be your first episode that you hear from me, that I do not like doing current events. I prefer to discuss kind of timeless truths of things that we can understand from the Bible at any point in history. However, I do recognize the value of applying a biblical worldview and showing how to do so actively with things that are happening, especially things within Christianity that people are making a big deal of and may not be seeing beyond what's simply on the surface or what we're assuming is there. So understand that I am simply doing this to genuinely help other believers. I'm not doing this because I have an axe to grind or because I don't like something. I am doing it simply and plainly to serve the people of God in whatever way that I can. So before we really jump in to thinking through what happened, we need to understand what was going on in the first place. What happened at Asbury University? So on February 8th, there was a pretty mundane chapel service at Asbury University down in Kentucky here in America. In my linked article, you will find a link to the actual sermon if you would like to hear it. But uh, afterwards, after this you know, fairly normal chapel service, some students stayed behind for some prayer and worship. Some of them shared it on their social media, which prompted more students to join them. Uh, several hours later, as more and more people were kind of being encouraged to come join in on this, one student wrote about it on the university's online paper, sparking even more excitement that encouraged even more students to come join them. Now, as things continued, the students kept praying throughout the night and even into the next day, again, mixing singing with their prayers. Now, as the days have progressed, more people around the state and nation became aware of these events. A lot of people, as it really kicked up fervor, even made a trip to the university to participate in what was going on there. As you'll see on YouTube, a lot of attendees started live streaming the event, and a lot of others were reporting their experience and this even prompted some Christian celebrities and social media personalities to join in the event as well, which really amplified the excitement around the events. So prayer, worship, and Bible reading 
had been going basically nonstop since it started. Uh, now, the university's leadership, really for the sake of the students being able to function as college students with classes and homework, as well as for the sake of a somewhat small town that was not prepared for such a, a wave of people to come in, they did officially shut down the 24-7 worship event on February 19th. And as of this recording, are planning to have a a few evening services to close things out before just resuming things as they always had been before this. So that is what people are calling the Asbury Revival. It is seen as a revival similar to the old American tradition of revival where people are stirred up, they come back to God, and God just makes a mighty move through people, through an area um, that ideally will last for generations. And that's what people are calling it. So the first thing I want to talk about is what is revival? Now, many Christians in America grow up in church hearing for prayers of revival. A church may host semi-annual revival meetings, maybe in a big tent, depending on where you grew up. You may be familiar with that one. Uh, others may have a special speaker who specializes in stirring their listeners to commit to God, to weep over their sin and things like that. Uh, and still others may have special prayer sessions for their community or just an entire country, whether America, whether a country that is currently suffering under something. But in America, revival is almost part of the church's DNA, at least for how we think of revival. We look around at the state of the country and even the world, and we just long for those days of the Great Awakenings. We want Christianity to become normalized and an even celebrated part of everyday life like those days of yore. And so today people are praying for revival, which is exactly what seems to be happening in Asbury. At least that's what people are assuming is happening. It is an answer to prayer in this small, unassuming town in America. But as I said, what we want to ask ourselves is what is revival? Because revival, for all that we pray about it, for all that it features in people's prayers and in ministries, revival isn't even a biblical term. So we can't pray for revival from things like the Psalms or the Gospels or the New Testament epistles. Instead, it's really just a loaded term, which, as we will see in this discussion, actually changes definitions between different denominations. So what a Baptist may call a revival and what, say, a Pentecostal would call a revival are two very different definitions. But when people outside of charismatic or Pentecostal theology think of revival, they picture the effects of things like the Great Awakenings. They want to see entire communities experience impactful repentance from sin. They want them to have excitement for holiness and holy living. They want to see generations of changed lives, not just flash-in-the-pan decisions, but genuinely mothers and fathers training up their children to follow the Lord. And those children then train up their children, on and on it goes. And ultimately, they want to see a widespread embrace of Christianity in a community, a state, or even the entire country. Now, ignoring our desire to, to slip into Christian nationalism, which is something I've uh, written about and will link down in the show notes, but ignoring our desire to kind of slip into that, many Christians who love God 
who pray for revival will know that their prayers are answered by these changed lives, not just one person here, one person there, but a widespread, almost sudden change based on some some event that sweeps an area. And that is a fundamental issue with really this entire discussion, the entire idea behind calling this a revival. Because an exciting moment, even 10 days of exciting moments, doesn't mark a traditional revival. Instead, what marks a revival is what comes after that. Do we see this thing taking off and lasting? Or do we see it as just an emotional event that people were into, but really, as we're talking about Asbury, is it no different than, say, just like a Christian Woodstock, where people gathered, they camped out, they enjoyed their time, but then afterwards, it's just a nice memory that they have with nothing changing in their life. So ultimately, what we're talking about in this part of the discussion is not what's happening in Asbury right now or what happened when it was active, but rather what happened in the years following those events. And I say that because, again, while revival is not a biblical term, the idea behind it is. And so if we desire for God's word to be our guide, then we need to look to it for a biblical pattern of what it looks like when God changes entire communities or entire nations. Now, as we look at things, we can see events like this. A great example is King Josiah in 2 Chronicles 34 to 35. I will leave that for you to read on your own. But ultimately, this king was in Israel and God was kind of a known thing. He was part of their tradition, right? He was part of, of their routine, but God wasn't actively understood or worshiped or even really cared about. But when Josiah realized, after discovering the law of Moses, who God was and what their sin was, then Josiah and the entire nation of Israel changed. They tore down pagan worship objects and they rededicated themselves to obeying God. It wasn't just a momentary thing. It wasn't just a bunch of people who came around singing and praying and having a really emotional moment and then going back to their paganism. They changed for generations. Now, we see communities in the New Testament follow a similar pattern. We see this a lot in the book of Acts. And always, individuals and communities, they have whole life changes that radically impacts them for years to come. Now, a key thing here, as we are thinking about the Asbury revival, is that if singing was ever present in a so-called revival in the Bible, it was as a result of the revival, but the singing, the emotions, how people felt was not the revival itself. So people may have wept. People may have sung, sang. Excuse me, I'm an English nerd, but not a perfect one. But there may have been music present. There may have been celebrations. There may have been mourning. But the evidence of the revival in these people's lives was where they went, how their lives actually changed, not just what they did in the moment of emotion. And so, simply put, the argument around whether this event today is a revival really just shows our impatience. We see all throughout social media and the news that we want to just hastily label it something before we've seen its results. Now, that's not to say that God 
can't do anything through it, right? There are some events or some issues in this whole Asbury University situation that we're going to discuss. But ultimately, yes, obviously, whether or not it is our understanding of revival, God can and likely will work through or despite the events in Asbury. Maybe this was a God-stirred thing. Maybe this is something that God will use despite the misguided nature of it. But whether or not it's genuine or if it's just a fad, if it's just another thing in a whole sea of things that people just do because they're bored or interested or trying something else, we won't know that now. We're going to see it in the months and years that follow. Now, one thing I do want to note, and we'll talk about this a little more later, but it is noteworthy to say that even the Asbury leadership isn't calling this a revival. On their school's official website, they label it a spiritual renewal. Now, social media and news websites have attached the label revival to it. And I'm going to guess it's a combination of two different things. The first is, as I said, a student came out and immediately labeled it a revival in their online university newspaper. So people were already flocking to what they were told was a revival. They were tweeting and Instagramming and TikToking different things with the label of revival. Now, the second reason I think that the term revival took off is simply because it generates clicks. It generates interest in a country that even if people are not within Christian circles, they are aware of what Christian revival signals. And so people would be at least somewhat curious about the news story rather than a bunch of students have gathered for spiritual renewal in Asbury University. It's a revival is taking place. So that is that discussion on bare bones. What is a revival outside of charismatic theology? We'll get to that one later. Now, the second thing to talk about is how can we evaluate this so-called revival through scripture. Now, praying for revival may not be commanded in scripture. It may not be a thing that actually happens. It may not be a term that God, through his divine omniscience and inspiration, told the writers to write. Still, a biblical-based understanding of what should happen at gatherings like this, where whole communities are changed, can still fuel our prayers and help us better evaluate whether something truly is from God. Now, there's all kinds of ways we could take this, but I think the simplest way to evaluate revival-type meetings is through a man named Jonathan Edwards. Now, this was the pastor who God used to kickstart the Great Awakening all the way back in the 1700s. Now, as he cautiously reflected on what God did through Edwards Church, as well as throughout New England— and especially as he had to defend this revival from critics who were doubting it, he wrote something called The Distinguishing Marks of a Work of the Spirit of God. Now, that's what I'm going to call it, because if you've read anything from the 1700s, their titles were actually like a paragraph long. So I will leave it to you if you are curious about the whole title of this. But anyway, so he wrote this document, and in it, he used 1 John chapter 4 to help the people of his day understand whether or not God had granted the revival they had seen, and it serves as a wonderful guide for us today as well as we're looking at anything revival-related, but especially down in Asbury. 
Now, Edwards understood, as we must, the importance of the command that starts off 1 John chapter 4. This is verse 1, and I'm going to be reading uh, in this podcast episode out of the Legacy Standard Bible Translation. But it says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. So that is the foundation that he begins with, and that's what we are going to begin with as well, is as I said at the top of the episode, we're going to be testing all the things here, not just holding up what people are saying and doing against Bible verses, but logically and theologically and biblically saying, is what's happened here genuine, or is there a far more likely explanation, but we are ignoring it because we want it to be something more than it is, or we want to to hand wave it away because we just don't like it. Now, Edwards gives five principles that we can use to test a revival. And he uses it basically 1 John chapter 4 from beginning to end to help us with this. So point number one is that it points people to the true and biblical Jesus Christ. In 1 John 4, 2 and 3, it says, By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. Now, one risk we have to be aware of when evaluating Asbury or anything else is whether it points to Jesus or just a Jesus-like figure. And I say that because Jesus is hugely popular in our culture. But there are so many false versions of him out there that it's really not just a simple matter of do they say positive things about Jesus. We have to evaluate what is said about Jesus and the gospel alongside scripture, not just the version of Jesus or the version of the gospel that we prefer. Now, I will say that the services that I have encountered as I've been paying attention and especially preparing for this whole conversation— will usually have a speaker say a little bit about Jesus, but most of this whole Asbury experience, this 10 days of revival, centers around singing songs, sharing uplifting testimonies, or giving brief and sometimes vague challenges instead of accurately teaching truth from the Bible by looking at it in its context, explaining what God said then, what it meant to the original audience, so that then we can understand it today. Now, if you follow along with my article, there is a link in there to one speaker where I give an example of this, where he basically makes an altar call based on some kind of vague references to burdens that people brought there. And while that's valid, and he even talks about Jesus in the midst of that, realistically, with how that that altar call is portrayed when people are invited to bring their burdens, even unbelievers can find relief by going through a, a physical ritual where they approach an area and they figuratively, figuratively leave their burdens there, whether or not Jesus is the one who removes them. So this is actually a counseling technique where you will take your fears, take your thoughts and all that, and you'll put them in like a box and you'll lock the box. And that is you symbolically setting your cares and concerns aside. And a lot of people can hear these kind of vague messages about, you know, things that people really struggle with, burdens, anxieties, fears, and say, hey, come to the altar and just leave them here. But without an accurate understanding of how Jesus Christ removes our guilt, he is our rock, he is our comfort. But only for those who believe, you don't have a whole lot of the real Jesus. 
And then other people, other speakers that I've heard seem to follow a similar pattern. They really get a handful of minutes. Sometimes they'll get a good maybe 20 or 30 minutes. But for the most part, what I've seen is people get a handful of minutes to speak in between hours of worship music. And their comments tend to be either uplifting or comforting, but rarely present repentance from sin and trust in the sacrificial work of Jesus as more than just freedom from emotional guilt and pain. So, yeah, Jesus is present, but I don't know how many speakers are giving a clear gospel message compared to how many insist on the audience's need for quote-unquote healing and restoration. And again, the problem with that is that it allows people to attach any number of meanings to that when they are not guided by the truth of Jesus Christ in the gospel and understanding what burdens are, and how they find true freedom from it, not just emotional freedom, but freedom from the bondage, freedom from the guilt before God of those things. Now, I want to be incredibly fair and say that I'm not saying that no one is genuinely representing Jesus. And I say that because it is ridiculously difficult to understand a lot of the speakers that people are live streaming, you know, because it's through a camera phone, where people are kind of pulled back, you know, they're in a balcony in kind of an echoey room. It's not easy to pick out a lot of what people are saying. So others might be more articulate about Jesus and the gospel. But one thing is clear as we evaluate any revival is that who Jesus is and what he did on the cross has to not just be mentioned, but it has to be central to any work of God and to any hope of a true and genuine revival. Now, number two that Edwards brings up is that it opposes the work of Satan in the world. First John 4, verses 4 to 5 say, You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world hears them. Now, again, we have to evaluate whether a revival is opposing the work of Satan alongside Scripture, not our preferences, not what we just think the work of Satan is, because anything that we don't like must be the work of Satan. Many, if we're going to go extreme, many would argue that it's satanic to speak against sexual or gender issues. It's satanic to speak against abortion or really any other sin-related issue that the church has historically stood against. Now, on top of that, things like self-doubt, low self-esteem, or emotional guilt are also seen as sins that need to be healed with encouragement, inner strength, or just loving ourselves more. Now, in churches where you see the prosperity gospel, which is a disturbingly increasing number as the years go by, the works of Satan are opposed when people speak against the sinful spirits of poverty and the sinful spirits of of sickness and illness, right? So sin and Satan can be opposed by saying, hey, we are unhappy with life, so we're going to speak against that. And there's so many more, more ways that we misunderstand what sin and the works of Satan truly are, but ultimately it boils down to the fact that we can't just evaluate whether sin or Satan are verbally opposed, where people are speaking against them. But whether the things said about sin and about Satan are actually biblical, and especially how and why people find victory over sin and the works of Satan in the world. Now, number three here 
is that God's divinely inspired word is highly regarded and intentionally taught. We get this from 1 John 4, 6. We are from God. The one who knows God hears us. The one who is not from God does not hear us. From this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, sometimes people read from the Bible at Asbury. But the important question, of course, is how people are using the Bible. Are they trying to motivate and inspire by misusing verses like Jeremiah 29, 11, a verse that we dealt with far towards the beginning of this whole podcast? Do they cherry pick and talk about the good verses without the bad reality of sin? Is the Bible ultimately preeminent in this revival, or is it a participant in something more important? Now, as we're looking at Asbury, although some songs have biblical references, the Bible itself doesn't seem to saturate the event. It's not central. The truths of God, as seen in the Bible, are not core to what is happening. Nor is the Bible taught beyond a verse or two that supports a call to holiness or confession after hours of singing. Now, again, that doesn't mean the Bible is not being taught, but that much of the teaching, much of what people are learning about God, much of what they are experiencing is through song lyrics and brief words from speakers and people giving their testimonies, both of which may reference the Bible but aren't thoroughly teaching from it and equipping people to understand who they are based on what God's word reveals. Now, later, as we get a better understanding of how many in this charismatic audience and on stage understand the function of worship, it's not going to be very surprising as to why music is the primary teacher and motivator for a lot of what's happening. Now, number four is whether or not people leave understanding the truth. Now, this, again, is seen at the tail end of 1 John 4, 6. For this we know, the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Now, people can always say true things, but if those true things aren't told fully and accurately, then many people who hear them will very likely leave with false understandings or assumptions. So, what we want to ask is, what is the spirit of truth? Is it an actual angelic-type spirit? No, ultimately, it's a mix of man's teachings and the Holy Spirit's illumination of some critical things in the life of every person. These are things like God's existence, his hatred of sin, our guilt of breaking God's law, our guarantee to stand before him in judgment, our inability to save ourselves to avoid that judgment, knowing that Jesus Christ alone offers forgiveness and salvation for our sin, our need to repent from sin and trust in Jesus to save us, not just assuming he's going to save everyone, but truly trusting and resting in his work and not our own. And then finally, a call for Christians to live holy lives. These are things that need to be taught. These are things that the audience needs to understand. And if they are missing out on most, if not all of them, then they're not really going to have anything biblical that's reviving them. Now, to kind of paraphrase what Edwards says in his own writing, it can be thought of and understood like this in a bit more modernized English. A teaching that pulls us out of darkness and puts us in the light must offer truth and free us from deception. So if the teaching lacks clarity or if it relies on an emotional experience to move people, then ultimately truth is not being taught and thus it's not the spirit of truth 
that is evidence of God's work. So if it's not a spirit of truth being proclaimed because people are not leaving understanding true things, right, the things that they need to understand for salvation and holy living, then what we're left with is going to be a spirit of error. Now, again, God may still reveal truth to people, but it will have to be despite the teachers who are failing to adequately teach others, rather than revealing truth to people through the faithful teaching of his word. And then number five here is that people learn a love for God and others. Now, really, you should read 1 John chapter 4, verses 6, all the way through 21, because it really gets into this idea. But one of the parts of this that Edwards quotes is verses 12 and 13, where he says, or where it says, No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him and he in us, because he has given us of his spirit. Now, an event that leads to true and genuine revival is going to instill a deep love for God, and through that love for God will come a love for others. But as with everything, especially in this discussion, we have to exercise caution when we try to understand that and interpret it through our own modern context. Because we need to remember that a love for God does not rest in how we feel in the moment, but in what we know. Love's not an emotional thing. It comes from an understanding of the object of our love, what we believe about it, what we understand about it. So the more we understand God, the more we love him because of who he is, because we know that he is worthy of our love and worship. And then that love for God is going to simultaneously reveal who we are, prompting us to walk in humility and be able to love those who are really just as broken and in need of Jesus Christ as we are. But ultimately, we love God and others by what we know about him and what his holiness reveals about us. So it's not enough for a Christian event to create feelings that we associate with love for God based on when and where we feel them. So just because we feel a, an intense emotion while people are singing about God or while we are, we are singing about God doesn't mean that that emotion is a sign that we truly love God. It just means that we feel something good while we are in a God-adjacent event. And we also can't say that we're genuinely loving people because we are swept up in a crowd of people who are praying for one another or singing together. That helps us feel connected, right? And, and all those things are pleasant experiences, but they're also very possible without God being present in the moment. People can easily be caught up in an emotional or music-driven event. I mean, you look at you know, the old sync concerts from back in the day and things like that, you know, people will get overcome with emotion during musical events because of what music does to us, because there is a, a biology to how music makes us feel. And so just because we feel a thing doesn't mean that that is God connecting to us through the music. And then likewise, people can confuse love for others, genuine sacrificial love, with just a feeling of camaraderie we get because people are experiencing something right there alongside us. They are emotional. We are emotional. They are praying. We are praying. Therefore, we must be loving one another. Again, love 
like revival is not something that you feel in a moment. It's something that lasts. It's something that is a core to who you are and what you do. And so ultimately, what we learn from number four, right, what we truly understand about God are going to create an authentic love for God. Love is really just a natural response when we know who God truly is, what sin is, what we are, and what Jesus has done. When we trust in Christ for salvation, we are going to love him. We're going to love God for who he is. But if love feels magnified or more real, or if we feel love for God for the first time in a long time, simply because of the atmosphere we're in, and especially if that atmosphere is kind of vague and emotional that even unbelievers can be swept up in it, then that's not a love for God. So those are the five points that Jonathan Edwards gave for how to test if a revival is truly from God. Now, before we get too critical of that, I want to acknowledge that I pointed out some failings that I've seen at Asbury University. But I did so with a purpose. It's so very easy, and I've seen this a lot. So, pe- so many people point out the, the recordings and the stories coming out of Asbury and say, oh, well, they're talking about Jesus. They use Bible verses. They talk about love on stage. And people assume that they've genuinely evaluated what's happening and can clearly declare that it's coming from God. And I'll also acknowledge it's very easy just to cross our arms and kind of, you know, hand wave it away. But it is far more difficult to be discerning and look beyond what's happening on the surface to evaluate and test if Christ is truly being magnified or if this whole thing is something that's just Christ adjacent, right? Christ is talked about, words are used, but it's not the true Christ. Now, For example, we've all seen allegedly Christian groups and events use many of these right words without clearly calling believers and unbelievers to biblical repentance or salvation or holy living. I cite, for example, any prosperity gospel event. So we don't want to immediately label something as being of God just because people reference God during it. But it's also worth noting that it's very difficult to completely know how far our criticisms can go with Asbury for a few reasons. Now, the first reason is that, as I said earlier, it is so hard to hear what's being said by some of the speakers. The music is a bit more clear because the entire building is singing, so people are adjacent to these phones and can be picked up, and the music is a bit louder and doesn't even necessarily need to be as clear as a speaker's articulated words. But again, when individuals are standing in balconies and using their phone to live stream someone who is speaking on stage, and that speaker is using what is really a basic sound system that doesn't get picked up well on a phone, it's just hard to hear them. So I'll give you an example of what I mean here. So there was one eight-hour stream that I went through, and it had three teachers within the span of an entire eight hours, as well as a handful of testimonies and prayers here and there. But I could really only pick out most of what two of those teachers said. There was one teacher I could not hear from start to finish, and I'm pretty sure almost all the testimonies and prayers I could only pick up bits and pieces of. So these speakers I have been able to understand have not been very biblically focused. They have fallen under a lot of the criticism that we should be concerned about. However, I and all of us do need to acknowledge that that doesn't mean that people aren't hearing the gospel from other speakers 
and we just can't understand them on, on these videos that are being recorded. Now, the second thing to realize is that there have been over 200 hours of worship and speakers. Now, I don't think all of them have been recorded, but even if 100 hours worth have been recorded, that's 100 hours worth of stuff to go through. So unless someone goes through and transcribes what every person has said, we can really only look at a few speakers that were recorded and we can understand and use those to, to catch the tone and the value of the teaching. But again, we could risk a baby in the bathwater situation. So I do acknowledge that. And then number three, it's also really worth considering who is doing the teaching and where these testimonies are coming from. Now, this is an event that is basically led by students and some teachers who were not remotely prepared for this. Now, I know personally, I like to have at least 20 hours of preparation and studying before I go and thoroughly teach something to a group. But those at Asbury, because of how all this kicked off, because of how sudden it was and with everything else that they're scrambling to deal with, with logistics and safety and all that stuff, some of them may have only had a few hours of preparation time before they got up to speak. And not only that, but several students have gotten up to speak. A lot of these testimonies, maybe all the testimonies are from college age kids. So, you know, from 18 to maybe 25 or so. And let's just be honest, even though Asbury University is a Bible university, the sad reality is that most university students anywhere in America don't really know how to articulate the gospel and holy living adequately. And most especially have not been trained to separate their emotions from what is true and real. Now, none of that is an excuse for where teachers and students may fall short, but we also have to remember that this really, a lot of what we're hearing is on par with what happens at Christian colleges or young adult ministries all across the country. It's not great. The Bible teaching may be incredibly weak. It may be shallow. It may be eisegetical, which is to say, you know, we don't look at the context. We just say, oh, well, what does this mean to me? And how can I get an inspirational story out of this? But we do need to make sure that we are consistent with our standards and our criticisms for teens and 20-somethings and those who teach them within our own circles. So if we would tolerate, you know, subpar, substandard teaching and understandings of the gospel and important doctrines and theology from students and those who teach them, then we need to hold those same standards for what's happening here just in terms of how harshly we come down on them. Now, the next topic to discuss are some noteworthy leadership decisions that we've seen in this. Now, if you go and watch the sermon that preceded this whole spontaneous 24-7 worship time, you'll realize that this whole event was not pre-planned by leadership, nor was the so-called revival a response to some world-shattering sermon Instead, it started simply, and no university like this one could have predicted what was coming next. And so this context lets us really appreciate the wisdom of some of the leaders throughout this. Now, most impressive of all is that they have done nothing to capitalize on the fame of this. They've been kind of behind the scenes, not trying to make a big deal out of things. Uh, we know that they declined coverage from Tucker Carlson, who was a talk show host. He offered to come down and interview people. They respectfully said, no, thank you. Um, 
stories have come out that they have uh, refused a musician's offer, so a famous Christian singer, their offer to lead the worship services to maybe professionalize it a bit more. And instead, the leadership chose to let their students continue to lead worship, however imperfect they may be. Uh, They also reportedly knew that a false teacher named Todd Bentley was coming in town, and they said that they were making sure that he didn't cause any issues. So... On top of all that, they've made a lot of requests and may set up restrictions to let them prioritize high school and college-age kids so that an event at a university can best serve those that the university itself is there to serve. So if a university is there for kids you know, 18 to 25, they've made sure that despite how many people across the country want to come in, that they are prioritizing those that they are called to serve. So it, we can't deny that the leadership was thrown into the deep end as they tried to coordinate a giant flood of people, maintain safety, and encourage what they see as a work of God amongst their students and community. It's really easy for us to sit back with all the facts and critique the small university like an armchair quarterback and say what they did wrong and how they should have done this small thing differently when they are sitting there scrambling in the midst of unprecedented national attention and an unexpected horde all around their student chapel and their campus. So whatever our opinion of the event itself, however critical we may be of the things happening with the problematic teaching, with the nature of worship, with the theology and all that, I do think that we should at least appreciate the humility and wisdom that have been displayed by the leaders and how they've handled this level of attention that their university has received. Now, the next thing to talk about is easy believism, camp decisions, and altar calls. Throughout the history of America, something that really almost every single attempt at revival deserves criticism for is called easy believism. Now, this is closely linked to things like altar calls that Charles Finney popularized back in the 1800s and were even central to the Billy Graham crusades that you may be familiar with in recent memory. Now, in its most straightforward terms, easy believism desires to make the gospel very simple and very approachable. But because it encourages people to make decisions for Christ in the midst of very intense emotion, it also very irresponsibly produces an incredible number of false converts. Now, to understand easy believism, just listen to some of the phrases of it that you've likely heard before. So, for example, just pray this prayer to be saved. You may have seen that in the back of gospel tracts. Raise your hand if you'd like to accept Jesus from your seat, or come forward to the altar and accept Jesus, or ask Jesus into your heart and you'll be saved. Now, the issue here isn't necessarily what is said, but what comes before and what comes after those statements. So the gospel that precedes these things is often very manipulative and designed to either scare people into heaven, it's filled with promises of hope and comfort without an accurate understanding of sin and the cross, or it just exposes the guilt of sin and offers emotional relief to someone. So it's a very base-level, emotion-driven thing that says, here, just pray this prayer and you'll be saved. It doesn't matter necessarily if someone understands it as long as they feel like they should be saved and just pray a prayer. And then at the end of the day, 
Few people who accept Christ in these mass revival settings truly understand what's happening and thus can't truly repent and ask for forgiveness. Now, as I said, one of the problems is what comes before this call to just pray a prayer or raise your hand to be saved. The next issue is what follows, because people who pray these prayers don't receive discipleship afterward which means that those who have a false conversion may not realize they were not truly saved for years until Jesus Christ finally does save them, or they may not realize it until the final judgment. <laughs> now, those who Jesus truly does save are frequently left to coast through their whole life as a baby Christian, and they don't learn how to grow in holiness and sanctification. They don't know how to read and study and understand their Bible. They don't know the basics of the Christian life. Now, during these things, at most, someone may tell them to attend a church, although they won't really give any guidance on how to find a gospel-centered church, so who knows where they'll end up, and they might tell them to read their Bibles. But as we've discussed in this podcast, there is a vast difference between reading your Bible and studying your Bible. Most, however, are celebrated when they respond and make that decision to Christ. Maybe they are told to put their date of salvation in their Bible, but then after that, once the emotions die down, they're just kind of shuffled through and abandoned to figure things out on their own. Now, in a broad sense, this lack of discipleship is a massive problem faced by many Christians. People are emotionally manipulated, then told to respond, whether to salvation or just dedicating to them, themselves to God. Because, and only because, their current emotional state confirms their need to do so. So if someone is saying a lot of very scary things or, or drawing on your emotions, using that really soft, melodic music during the altar call, and if you feel an emotional pull towards that, that must mean it's time to get saved, or that must mean that the Holy Spirit is calling on you to dedicate your life to God. Now, if you've been in the Christian game long enough you'll know that this is very often the case at things like Christian camps. And it's even so common that if I were to say to you, if you were someone who went to a Christian camp and I told you that these are basically just camp decisions, you know exactly what I'm talking about because that's how prevalent this is in Christianity to make an emotion-driven, intense decision that you are confident you're going to carry out until things cool down a little bit. But whether you're at camp or during an altar call, the problem with these easy commitments to salvation or serving God is that really they don't last. They feel so right at the moment. And, you know, a speaker has usually stirred up an individual's emotions to the point that they feel that they're just ready to abandon everything if it means they can have Jesus. However, their devotion to God lasts as long as their emotions do. And so when that moment has ended, when the emotions die down, they're left completely devoid of the joy they once experienced in that moment. And so this turn and burn approach to repentance has got plenty of issues, as we can see. But there are three issues really worth considering as we are testing the Asbury revivals. First, these highly emotional decisions give people a false assurance of salvation and the lack of follow-up with these people who de dedicate their lives to Christ or who, who cry out for salvation have no follow-up. So people aren't going to know what it is that happened, and if it was genuine. Second, it teaches them that they experience God through intense emotion that they now have to continue to chase. A lot of people that I talk to, they 
they find God in the midst of great tragedy or great suffering or great struggle in their lives. And so God feels so real to them. And that's not to say that they aren't truly saved or they don't truly turn their lives to Christ in that moment. But their understanding of God has set a precedent that if they are truly experiencing God, it's when they are encountering these deep, intense, overwhelming emotions. And so to experience God, to know that they love God, to know that God loves them, they have to keep chasing these emotions. They got to keep feeling them or else. And then third, it sets a precedent for an inconsistent spiritual life filled with extreme highs of emotion, followed by devastating moments of emptiness and joylessness when those emotions fade. So again, when we're thinking about what we see at Asbury University, what we have to question is what the speakers are calling people to do during these intensely emotional moments, whether it's someone teaching, whether it's someone giving a testimony, whether it's one of the worship leaders, what are they calling people to do? What is the foundation of these commitments that people make, either for salvation or rededication to the Lord? Are they being equipped to serve once the music and emotions have ended? Are people being told their sins were paid for on the cross just because they approached a stage and prayed some kind of prayer? Again, the key here is what is it they're believing during that prayer? Because praying a prayer is iffy, but not inherently bad. As long as you are believing the thing that you're praying. And are people understanding enough to truly believe what they call out to Christ to do? And ultimately, what we need to ask is, are these altar calls preceded by solid biblical truth and followed by intentional discipleship? And if it's not obvious, altar calls are not great things. They create big responses. They yield big numbers. But because they're built on emotion instead of truth, because they are easy, because they don't require any investment in us, it's all about people feeling like they need to do something. They rarely result in genuine conversions or lasting commitments. And those few Jesus does save are honestly left spiritually immature for years. So before we go celebrating this supposed revival, we need to ask, are altar calls and camp decisions what we think of with genuine revival. Now, the next topic is when we confuse emotionalism with conviction. So as we read or listen to the testimonies of those who attend, so there's a lot of people afterwards who go on TikTok and Instagram and give their own experiences, it becomes very easy to notice a trend. People will arrive, and they're not really sure what to expect, They then experience something during the singing or the spontaneous prayers amongst people. And in that, in the music, in the the heartfelt prayers that are going on around them and all the emotions swirling, they suddenly feel a deep sense of conviction from God. And those who arrive and admit that they were skeptical often feel their doubts fade away as this whole moment of worship just sweeps them along. Now, to give just one example of this, of someone who wrote about their experience, and there's a link to this in the original article, Um, but one writer says, I was still an anxious skeptic as we entered the chapel service. I hoped we hadn't wasted our time. I was standing there looking around, ready to critique what I saw and heard when I felt a sudden sense of conviction. I watched as my wife worshipped beside me, and then I began to allow myself to be in the moment. It became clear 
the biggest obstacle to my participation in this worshipful revival was my own cynical heart. So what happened here? What is the report? What was the turning point? Well, the writer arrived skeptical that this was all kind of emotionalism and not legit. But he was proven wrong when he gave in to his emotions. When he, when he felt an emotion with his wife beside him and the people around him and the music and stuff. When he talks about this conviction, notice that there was no conviction at the truth of God being put forth. But just the moment that he allowed himself to be in. The emotions swirling around him. And so many people report a similar conviction. But what is it about? What truth is being proclaimed that leads people to a deep-seated awe of their God and an honest examination and hatred of their own wretchedness? For most reports, it's simply the feeling of the moment that convicts them. And in that, people confuse a wonderful experience with spirit-filled conviction. Now, make no mistake, God can convict us with the most unlikely things. And that's because the Holy Spirit often spends days or even years, for some of us, preparing our hearts for that single aha moment where he uncovers an area that we now need to surrender to God or intentionally stand in rebellion. And it's arrogant to think that absolutely no one can be convicted through singing or prayer or just being around God's people. But as with easy believism that we already talked about, Ignoring how our emotions confuse reality is also incredibly foolish. It is way too easy to feel the so-called presence of God through our heightened emotions, but then we lose God's presence when the emotion ends and everyday life resumes. And so when we're in a unique situation, like people found themselves in with the Asbury revival, and many people are seeming to experience God around you, People go there reporting to you that they've experienced God. They felt something. And so you go there expecting something to happen. It's very, very simple to feel an unusual emotion in that moment, to feel yourself swept away, to feel the music take over you and just correlate it with God saying, well, I'm hearing music about God and I'm feeling a thing. Therefore, it must be God. But just because we feel emotion while God's mentioned doesn't mean it's a direct encounter with God. It doesn't mean God is speaking to us or revealing himself to us. It might just mean that we like the atmosphere. It might just mean that we respond well to music, that we like live music, that we like unencumbered singing, that we like just being around people, that we just like being in an atmosphere where there's no negativity or political agendas. But just because we are in something that we like that gets us biologically responding doesn't mean that that proves that God is, is, is moving in that moment. And again, as I said, especially if when we are convicted, when we are feeling God's presence, if there's no truth being said, it's just emotion swirling around us and within us. Now, another interesting sub point that will lead us into our next main point is the Asbury University's Wesleyan roots. So they are proud of their Wesleyan heritage. Now, Wesleyanism isn't something maybe a lot of people are familiar with, but as we would say, you know, Baptist, uh, Pentecostal, Lutheran, we can also say Wesleyan. It's just a, a subgroup of Christianity. But like many denominations, Wesleyanism has beliefs that Christians can agree with or that they can debate. And one of the very popular things to debate within Christianity is is whether or not supernatural gifts like healing or speaking in tongues have continued on. 
And John Wesley, the father of the denomination, if you will, can best be described as a cautious charismatic. Now, he was very clear that he believed that the gifts, the supernatural gifts, were still active today, but probably not as prevalent as modern groups would insist that they are. But of note is that both Charismatics and Pentecostals claim that Wesleyanism set the stage for their own denominations. And understanding that, understanding that Charismatics and Pentecostals were, in a sense, birthed or partially parented by Wesleyanism, helps us better understand why people have reported students exercising the gifts of healing. We've got one student who claims he was miraculously healed. We have seen uh, videos of people trying to cast out demons during the worship service and in halls and things like that. And we've seen people just try to present other supernatural gifts. Now, fortunately, things happening here in Asbury University, in the chapel at least, are not as outlandish as in many other charismatic churches. But people in that chapel worship with the full expectation that God will and then does work miracles in their midst. And so having talked about Wesleyanism very briefly, we can now talk about the next main point, which is the definitions of revival and worship in charismatic theology. Because now we can better understand the context of things being said and done. Because as I've listened to speakers and testimonies of those who attend, there's a very clear and intense mark of the charismatic movement in what and how people are saying things. And because some of the most popular worship music used in churches and during the Asbury Revival come from charismatic churches like Bethel, Hillsong, and Elevation, we, as maybe more casual listeners, may not realize how much this terminology and theology has become normalized, even by suit-and-tie Baptists. So, simply put, Emotional worship, the stuff that we've talked about now, where it's all about you encounter God through your emotions and what you feel, this is central to the charismatic life. And that is why charismatic music and worship is deeply personal, highly emotional, and repetitively repetitive. Emotional reactions during worship are not just a side benefit of worship, but they are worship. You worship when you feel something. When your emotions are stirred up, when you feel God's presence, that is worship. You don't think about God, dwell on God, sing together about the the glory of God or the wretchedness of us alongside other people. And because of who God is, because of those truths, you then feel an emotion. Within this charismatic theology, the whole point of worship is to feel something. And so, again, I said it's deeply personal because it needs to be about us. We are the ones thinking about ourselves. We are focused on ourselves and how we feel about God in the moment and how he feels about us as individuals in the moment. It's very emotional because, again, if you are sitting there singing and not feeling something, you're not truly worshiping. The The clearest and surest sign that you are truly worshiping God and that his presence is there in you and around you is how you feel. And it is repetitive because that simplicity is important. The, they, they would not say this, but the reality is that repeating things makes you lose yourself to yourself. It's the same thing as non-Christians who do chants and mantras and things like that. When we repeat something over and over again, and especially with the type of music used, 
it makes us feel things that then within the context of this theology proves to us that we love God, that we are having an encounter and an experience with him. But as you may have noticed, according to charismatics, we also have to understand that worship isn't just about human emotion. So it's not just, I went somewhere and heard a cool song from a, a pop band or something, or, you know, a really good, you know, female vocalist. And I couldn't understand the words, but I felt something. That's not just what it is. It's not just about having the emotion. Because those within this theology believe that these emotions are evidence of God's presence, as I've said. So they believe that when they feel this, they aren't feeling a human emotion. God's presence is what they feel. So when we're singing, when we're feeling these emotions, those emotions are proof that God's presence is coming down from heaven and that the Holy Spirit is flowing out of us. And so the more intensely you are made to feel during worship... What that's really saying is that is how much more of God's presence you're encountering. That's how much more of the Holy Spirit is pouring out of you. And so that's why during these worship moments, people are exercising the spiritual gifts because from their understanding, God's presence is so real to me that I feel shaky. I feel the tingles throughout my body. I feel joy. I I feel like crying. I feel like dancing. And so that means that the Holy Spirit is going to pour out of me even more and more of these supernatural gifts are going to come out of me. Now, to kind of understand what is is taught within this group, we can look at a quote from Darlene Sheck. I apologize if I butcher that name, uh, but she is a formal, former Hillsong music leader. And she says, our praise is irresistible to God. As soon as he hears us call his name, he is ready to answer us. And that is the God we serve. Every time the praise and worship team with our musicians, singers, production teams, dancers, and actors begin to praise God, his presence comes in like a flood. Even though we live in his presence, his love is lavished on us in a miraculous way when we praise him. That is worship in charismatic theology. So when we are singing these songs written by these groups and they talk about the Holy Spirit, things being poured out, God's presence, this is what we are singing about. This is what they are saying. They literally think that God's presence comes and makes you feel emotion. It has nothing to do with the music. The music just brings on our worship to bring God down to us and bring the Holy Spirit out of us. So... It does seem on the surface that a lot of good is happening at Asbury based on what we're seeing in live streams and and reports of people who uh, attend. But their words and their phrases don't mean what they think they mean. And so understanding how charismatics view worship, we can look at common things said during or after this whole multi-day worship event and interpret them properly. So when someone when you hear someone say that they could feel God's presence during this worship, what they're saying is that they feel intense emotions and believe God is making his presence known. And the more this is repeated, the more it's said, the more they have these encounters, the more they teach others to interpret their feelings as the presence of God. Now, this belief, this understanding stems from a common misunderstanding of when Jesus said in Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am with them. So they believe that when we gather for worship and we sing, God comes down and that when we feel emotion, we should interpret that as God's presence. Now, another thing you'll hear is that they 
had to be filled with the Holy Spirit or they could feel themselves being filled with the Holy Spirit. Maybe speakers will tell others, you know, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, this means that by believing that supernatural gifts are still active today, performing things like healing tongues and prophecy is a sign that the Holy Spirit is flowing out of them. And for them, Acts 2 serves as the basis for this statement. And in many circles, this also refers to something called the second baptism of the Holy Spirit, which is an event that happens sometime after salvation to grant these supernatural gifts and personal sanctification. So to some groups, I don't believe the leadership of Asbury would say this, but to groups who are attending there, to groups like Bethel and things like that, your evidence of salvation is proven when you exercise these supernatural gifts, and sometimes you only know you're saved when you speak in tongues, just like we see in Acts 2 at Pentecost. Now, another thing that you'll hear is that people are having an encounter with Jesus. Now, we hear that, and we think we know what that means. But for them, this isn't just a clever metaphor for realizing the weight of their sin and turning to Christ for salvation or repenting of sin and seeking holiness. To them, people literally need to experience Jesus at a personal level. The actual person of Jesus needs to to interact with them. They need to feel his presence. They need to hear his voice. And they need to look for those confirming signs that he's in their heart. And then finally, as I said, people are claiming that God spoke to them. And we hear this a lot. You know, I'm in, in fairly conservative circles, if you can't tell. Uh, But even I hear people say, you know, oh, yeah, God spoke to me and said this. And people, what they mean is that they understand truth and they feel it confirmed in their emotions. And a lot of people get that from charismatic theology because, again, it is so widespread in every circle of Christianity. But those who come out of the charismatic movement explain hearing God's voice in basically the same way. So people in those circles are taught to listen to their feelings and then interpret them as God's voice. So if they feel like they should do something, they say, oh, God is telling me to do this. If they feel a confirmation or a, a reaction of something, so you'll hear people say, you know, I, I heard this teaching, I heard someone say this thing, but, you know, it just it didn't feel right in my spirit. And I could tell that God was telling me that was wrong. Uh, you know, I've actually, in in the life of this ministry, I've heard a few people say that to me, both in agreement to things I've said and in argument against things I've said, that based on how they felt, they could tell God was telling them yes or no that this thing is right. But within these groups, they will tell you that you might get it wrong sometimes. You may misunderstand God's voice and what he's telling you, but that's okay. Because the important thing is to have a willingness to be open to hearing from God and be willing to act on it, not knowing if it's truly God or your own heart. And what's wild about this to me is that they completely ignore Jeremiah 17, 9, which says that the heart is more deceitful than all else and desperately sick. Who can know it? So God's word clearly tells us, don't trust your heart. Don't trust your feelings. Don't trust what your instincts are telling you as if it was coming directly from God. And so understanding all of that, understanding how people are experiencing things, right? The common thread that's running through a lot of what people are saying, this very charismatic idea that, yes, we're there worshiping God. You know, God's presence is there during worship because we are feeling intense emotions. We can better understand what these people mean by revival because it is not the definition that we talked about towards the beginning of this episode. Because Asbury University students will tell you that they'd been praying for revival for years, 
But what does revival actually mean for them? What do they mean? Now, fortunately for us, the university itself has actually collected stories from a similar revival that happened in the 1970s, which is the last kind of major so-called revival that Asbury University has experienced. And the again, the link is in my original article. But if you read these stories of people who were there at the previous revival and you read them in light of what they mean when they talk about worship and, and encountering God and things like that then a clear thread of emotionalism runs through almost every single story there. Now, some people talk about how they, their lives were completely changed and they've served God since, which is awesome. But a lot of them, and a lot of what we're hearing today, is about the moment. Revival happened because in that moment, God's presence felt so real to so many people at the same time. And so revival isn't about a changed community. Revival isn't a let's wait and see what happens years down the road. Revival is a significant moment that gave them a uniquely emotional experience. And so here we see that definitions of worship and revival matter, as does how we interpret our own emotions. And although, again, Asbury's leadership itself isn't calling this a revival, people can only define their emotional experience with that term. And that's why we're seeing it over and over again. That's why within hours of students gathering to pray, someone was quick to sound the horn of revival, revival, because that's what revival is in this, these circles. And so because of that, visitors are making these hours-long pilgrimages to experience the emotional high of God's presence at this university. And many are convinced that it's a revival because so many people are having that emotional experience at the same time. So as we noted previously, revival throughout biblical history, again, that's not an actual word, but our understanding of revival, what we understand it to be throughout biblical history is ultimately an acknowledgement of sin and an immediate life change that lasts for years. The revival desired in charismatic theology will ideally result in a life change, but that's not necessary. Because as we see in Asbury, the revival is successful because a large group of people have an emotional experience. That is the beginning and end of what revival is in these, these terms. And so, you know, as we reflect on this, we can praise God and should praise God that the Holy Spirit is changing people, that there will be lives that go on a completely different trajectory because of God's work in their lives. But we also have to be so cautious when we listen to the emotions and experiences of others and use that, those emotions, to claim that it's the work of God. We cannot get swept up in their definitions if we disagree with charismatic theology. And I fear that far too many people who are looking at this positively and who are looking to replicate this revival themselves are doing so because they are working under completely different terms and therefore expecting different results, or they're going to chase after what Asbury has because that seems more successful than sitting and waiting around and hoping that God works to change people's lives long term. Going in a totally different direction, I'd like to now talk about social media and FOMO. So, do you remember planking, the ice bucket challenge, flash mobs, the Harlem Shake? Do you remember when kids would record themselves eating saltines as fast as they could, spoonfuls of cinnamon, or eating Tide Pods? Some lesser known things like this are when people would set themselves on fire and record it online. Or, more recently and slightly more disturbing, 
is something called the Kylie Jenner challenge. Now, Kylie Jenner is a woman who has full lips. And so people would basically suck on like jars and stuff and draw a bunch of blood into their lips to give them these massively swollen and bruised lips. And then, of course, record themselves online. Now, why do I bring that up? Because today, social media grips many generations. It's not Gen Z. It's not just millennials. Basically, anyone who is on social media is usually controlled by social media. People want to share their lives with the world so badly that they'll stage photos and videos to manufacture an identity that they want to portray to others. Or they will see others participating in different activities or challenges, like planking, the ice bucket challenge, on and on. They will see people do challenges or they see people do activities and they will feel, therefore, compelled to be a part of the group by doing it themselves and sharing it online. And then because they are sharing it, others see it. And this endlessly repeats this cycle until people move on to a new fad. Now, another issue that many face is called the fear of missing out or FOMO. Now, this fear of missing out has grown alongside social media as we watch other enjoy unique experiences and in how fast paced our world is. We feel compelled to participate quickly and soon because we don't want to miss out on the fun or being part of the in crowd or doing what everyone else is doing. And so FOMO is ultimately jumping off a bridge because our friends are doing it, except today we post about it on social media when we're all done with it. This is relevant and important to understand because Mark Whitworth, who is the vice president of communications at Asbury University, is quoted as saying, it has been it has absolutely been social media that is the mechanism that people found out about this. So we know and he knows that social media has fueled what happened at Asbury from the flood of students to the thousands of people visiting from around the country. The university's leadership knows that social media is to thank but we also need to acknowledge how social media is to blame for what's happening. Because consider this sequence of events. People shared their excitement that revival was breaking out when a few students stayed after chapel to pray and worship. Other students then joined them because they didn't want to miss out on the revival that was such a big part of this university's history. And we will get into that more in a moment. But then, as more people joined... More people were sharing their experiences online, which therefore prompted even more people to want to join in. So we can see the logical breakdown of how social media fueled something that seems organic, seems out of nowhere, but isn't terribly different from what we see throughout other online sensations. People are posting a thing they're excited about, and others, if they can, want to be part of that excitement. And again, at this particular university, when you hear revivals breaking out, you are going to be there because that's part of your legacy. That is almost an expectation hanging over you. Now, on top of all of that, we also need to remember how social media algorithms work because we know, and, and it's come out, that social media and these platforms and how they work rewards those who post things that get engagement, whether it's likes or sharing or whatever. And so people are incentivized to post very emotional and excited posts or share these photos and videos that are going to get people interacting with them. And so as that's happening, as people are getting hyped and people are having to be even more excited and share even more big moments so that they aren't getting lost in the crowd of other people because they want, they need people to interact with their stuff, then even celebrities are now incentivized to get in on it. 
and and drive down to Kentucky to be part of this revival. And then they post about it to their thousands or even millions of followers, prompting even more people to go. Social media is ultimately why so many people seem so excited about this. The fakeness of social media especially is why so many people are so excited and needing to feel something at this because they don't want to go there and say, yeah, it was okay. They need to match or exceed the excitement of others and the experiences of others because that's what social media has trained them to do. Now to see just how huge this was on social media, CBN News last Thursday, so not even when this whole thing was said and done, found that Instagram had over 1,000 videos of the event. And TikTok had over 24 million views on the hashtag Asbury Revival. So what are we seeing here? We are seeing that social media and the fear of missing out has exposed millions of people to a viral phenomenon at a small Kentucky university. And because it's popular on social media... People want to be part of the conversation. And the more people who are part of the conversation, the more other people need to be part of it because so many others are doing it that they are going to miss out. They are going to be lacking. They are not going to have likes and shares and new followers because of it. And so if we if we pull back from the spiritual aspect of it and, and hoping that this is true revival like we've seen historically or true revival like we've seen in the Bible— when we remove our expectations, our hopes, our desires, what we want this to be, the cycle of Asbury University's popularity has all the marks of every other craze fueled by social media. So like the Ice Bucket Challenge, like everything else that we've talked about, and so many more things that have gotten popular that everyone jumps on, people do it to be part of the latest internet sensation, but few of them participate with any real understanding of what they are doing. How many people did the Ice Bucket Challenge? How many people remember that that was actually a fundraising attempt for a disease? See, we all know the Ice Bucket Challenge, or most of us remember the Ice Bucket Challenge. So many people participated in it. Very few really understood the whole purpose of it. And so, with Asbury... We see that in a culture dominated by social media, so many people spent hours in their cars and many more hours standing in line just to be a part of what everyone else was doing. Millions of others saw it and trusted it, and maybe they shared it, and then they moved on. And so if we are willing to ignore the excitement that we are tempted to feel because people are calling this a revival and there's a lot of numbers and news coverage... It is so hard to distinguish what's happening here from everything else that social media has encouraged people to participate in. Again, that's not to say God won't use it, but we need to be very realistic about how this shows very few differences from every other viral internet sensation that people get so excited about until they no longer are, until it's no longer trendy or popular to do. Now... I would like to talk about the weight of expectations. Now, Asbury has a long history of revivals. We talked about the 1970 revival, which was pretty big, but the university has documented eight previous revivals at the university itself, with one as recent as 2006. And so, similar to a college that has a history of winning major football games, 
The faculty and students at Asbury University live under a great weight of expectation to continue the university's revival legacy. They are under a shadow. They are under an expectation. Maybe no one says it, but this is a university that is proud, that that displays regular revivals that take place and break out at the college. And so really think about that. Revivals are expected. They're part of the history. And again, understanding revival from their idea is not changed communities necessarily, but communities who are excited for an emotional moment. And so during the very sermon that seemed to launch the whole event, his final prayer asked God for revival. It was an offhanded comment, but in the prayer, revival was asked for. And then hours after the event, a student posted an article in the school's paper titled, quote, Revival Strikes Asbury Once Again. Now think about what the students would hear when they saw that. Revival, the thing that their college or their university was known for, the thing that they'd been praying about, the thing they'd been waiting for. Someone told them, someone blew the whistle. The alarm was sounded. Revival was here. What are they going to do if not run to it to be a part of the school's legacy? And then, of course, as the event progressed, that very same online newspaper run and owned by the college published at least 10 more articles calling this a revival. People around the country latched onto the term and became convinced that we were witnessing another great awakening that could bring the entire country back from God or back to God. But again, consider how Wesleyan theology defines revival and what this supernatural and highly emotional understanding would do to those students and faculty who truly desired revival like those in the university's past. Students and faculty likely made the whole idea, the prayer of revival, a very normal part of their prayers and of their university life. They attended this school knowing these events are part of their legacy. It was probably talked about. And so they would have grown up, if you will, hearing these great stories about the university's past. Now, I am 100% not accusing anyone of nefariously manufacturing this event and forcing it to happen. But we cannot ignore the desperation that these people would carry to see something, to see anything happen that looked like a revival. People may have been there for years, right? Since 2006. So depending on the month, six or seven years since there had been a revival. A whole fresh batch of students was there who had heard about it, who wanted it, but weren't seeing it. And so... It's very likely, and this is speculation, but I think it's very logical and likely speculation, that if we were Asbury students and we'd been there for several years, we likely would have seen other spontaneous prayer and worship sessions break out regularly throughout the years as people were desperately waiting for God to answer their prayer for revival. So they would, they would, they would push it out there. They would try some prayer and some worship time and maybe say, hey, is this going to spark revival? And over and over again, they would probably see it didn't, or at least not to the degree that their university was known for. And so this desperation to see something would explain why students were so hasty to label this as a revival after only a few hours. Because that, that word revival would have been so meaningful because it wasn't just an American revival like the Great Awakening. It was an Asbury revival as God poured out his presence and, and brought the Holy Spirit out of people. This was the revival they'd been waiting for. The university's legacy could finally continue if the students were just 
sure to be faithful stewards of what God was starting in their midst. And so what student would miss an opportunity to be a part of the school's history? Who wouldn't be so excited about worship or about revival that they wouldn't spread the historic moment around campus and social media? And so it's because of this that students flocked to see this revival finally taking place. And like a self-fulfilling prophecy, they signaled to others that it was a revival because look how many students were attending. The reality, and maybe it's a sad reality, is that the students of Asbury University had a great weight of expectation hanging over them. It seemed like a unique place where God wasn't afraid to create their definition of revival. And this weight fostered a desperation to see the potential for revival at every single moment. Now you add to this the superficial and always connected nature of social media alongside our culture's fear of missing out that we've already discussed. And it's really not hard to understand how something that started as just a few students, maybe honestly desiring to pray and worship, could balloon into something else that it never truly became. Now the final point or test that I'd like to run is to consider the worldview of an entire generation. The participants of the Asbury Revival have largely been Generation Z. They've primarily been high schoolers all the way up to people around the age of 25. Now, when we look at why something is popular with any particular generation or group of people, it's worth examining the worldview of that generation. And so just as we note that people who lived through the Great Depression are very frugal, some of you may have grandparents who grew up rinsing and saving Ziploc bags or grocery bags because they knew what it was like to not have even the most basic of necessities. So why throw away something you can reuse? Just like a whole generation has been molded and impacted through their shared worldview and experiences, we need to consider what Generation Z faces and has faced that might make the events in Asbury so desirable to them. Now, not all of these may accurately reflect reality, but these are the things that, are, that seem to be reality for many people of Generation Z, of people aged you know, in their teens all the way up to 25. So first to note, as we talked about, is that Gen Z lives in a very inter- interconnected world. Today, most of what they learn about comes through social media or YouTube. So they aren't like older generations who maybe hover around one or two news sites, but instead they learn about things more organically through their friends, through influencers, and through what websites are promoting on their preferred platform. So the different headlines that, you know, 20 or 30 different news sites push to them, that they read the headlines, and often that is as far as they go. And it's not just them, let's be honest. But... When these sources, when it's their friends and influencers and things like that, when they are pushing a new and exciting thing at them, especially one that is so unique and even involves travel, right? There's a destination to it. It's logical that a lot of people are just going to be encouraged to participate. Now, the second one is that Generation Z is a generation of exhausting fakeness. So much of their world is manufactured to manipulate what they think. And so they learn to be cynical. Whether it's the the lives that they see of other people online, whether it's all the news and how things come out, they've grown up learning to doubt and question everything. 
And most of them know that despite the centrality of social media in their lives, almost everyone is faking. They see over and over the hypocrisy and lies that people tell them and those same lies and hypocrisies that they see older generations ignoring or even perpetuating because it furthers the agenda of their political, religious, or social groups. Now, you consider that and realize that Asbury becomes appealing because it's simple, unmanufactured, and honest. No one there is fake. No one seems to be coming at them with hidden motives and agendas. It's just real people gathering together, singing and being positive. In a world where you never get real people, you never get people being honest and open and vulnerable. How appealing would it be to go somewhere that is just filled with nothing but positivity? Third is that they are isolated. Now, we know in a broad sense that it's far simpler to sit on a phone than to go out and socialize, right? It's easier to text, face chat, whatever, than to go out to drive, to spend money on gas, try to coordinate schedules. Online is just easier, right? Devices are just easier. It's also easy to go online and and in this isolation, have your only human interactions be either fighting with strangers online or spectating and not engaging in online communities because you just don't want to deal with that toxicity. And with the ease of feeling connected through social media, no matter how weak and non-connected you actually are to people, people who grow up that way may not realize that they lose out on genuine human connections that God designed us for. And we also can't deny the toll that the pandemic and lockdowns took on people who were trapped with abusive or distant family members. They were maybe cut off from whatever human connections they did have, and they were left ultimately struggling on their own with things like anxiety and depression with no one that they could connect to during those really difficult times. Now you take that, and then you look at Asbury, that was just a small building packed to the brim with people who had no agenda who were only positive, who, who offered to love them. They could go there and they could talk to people and be accepted, no matter the other differences they may have. People were there praying for, for one another. They were singing to God as a community. And they were sharing together an experience in person instead of just living through others and watching them live their lives through what they post on social media. They got to be a part of something with a group of real human beings. Now, the fourth thing to consider is that many of them have experienced dead religiosity because today Christianity is filled with Christian consumers who claim the religion and might even go to church, but are largely uninterested in holiness and sanctification. They are there for what they can get out of it. They are there because it makes them happy or they are promised something, but they don't, they haven't really bought in to following Jesus Christ. So maybe the Bible is seen as a rule book or a collection of inspirational quotes or just a thing that collects dust while they see their parents go out and live like the rest of the world. They see older generations within Christianity live hypocritical lives. People talk about the importance of having faith and trusting God, yet so few offer any reason to believe in God beyond things like, well, it's what I believe and you just have no right to challenge my beliefs and how dare you. And so to many who look at the weakness of Christians, those who are just kind of like in it for the emotional reasons without really understanding their faith themselves, 
Christianity is a dead religion that is held to out of tradition or self-interest rather than because they're genuinely convinced of God's truths. Now, Generation Z sees this. They've grown up in a family or in a world filled with weak Christianity that can't offer them any hope of standing up to things like science or the social needs that they see. They've learned a religion of selfishness, spiritual deadness, and even for some, spiritual abuse, whether through family members or people at church. And even if they didn't grow up in a Christian home, social media and news sources bombard them with scandals and abuses within Christianity all the time. And so their worldview sees the needs and suffering of others, but then they witness as Christians online ignore or belittle these suffering people, or even are the ones who seem to cause the suffering in the first place, whether today or historically. And so it becomes no surprise, based on this worldview, that the vibrant and emotional atmosphere of Asbury would be so appealing. In a world where Christianity seems dead, outdated, hypocritical, and without love, they see people their age filled with love and spiritual vitality. It is everything they felt was missing from modern-day Christianity. And it would have to feel so refreshing for those within this generation who do want to follow God, who do want Him in their lives, who do believe He's real. They just don't want the God that so many in the world seem to actually follow. So Asbury offered them the God that they felt they've always needed, one filled with just hope and joy and positivity and love for others. And then fifth, And finally, their world is a terribly hopeless place. You think about a generation who can't look back to better times. You think about a generation where war and plagues and earthquakes and murder and death aren't just signs of Christ's return. They're just a regular Tuesday for them. That is just normal. That's what they've grown up understanding. And on top of that, with with how real that stuff actually is, Social media and internet algorithms know that people are much more likely to respond and interact or click on scary and divisive headlines, which means that the more time people spend online, the more they're going to see how dangerous, broken, and hopeless the world is because they are going to be constantly just consumed with the internet shoving all kinds of clickbait, scary, over-sensationalized headlines meant to get them to pay attention. But when you see that dozens or hundreds of times a day, what's that going to do to your worldview? And so, Gen Z, like everyone else, needs hope. We all need something that we can lean on when we realize how powerless we are in our own lives. And so imagine spending days or just even hours in a group of people singing and praying with nothing but hope. How welcome would that break be from the rest of your world, where there is no disaster, there's no death, there's no sorrow and misery. It's just hope-filled singing, where you are there and you can just feel good the entire time you're there. So that is the worldview of Generation Z, these, these especially the 18 to 25-year-olds who are mostly in attendance there. That is something really worth considering. Because when we can try to understand their motives, their beliefs, and just everything that they understand, we can better understand why this event was so meaningful to them in particular, why it seemed like 
God was finally calling a generation to himself and why if this is not the revival that people are claiming it is, why it would seem like it was such an important thing where people were loving God. It was just something that they needed. Whether or not God was there, it was a positive experience with real human beings their age. So those are the main tests for why ultimately this Asbury revival is not so much a revival at all and may not even be the work of God that a lot of people are claiming it is. Again, yes, time will tell. That's what a lot of people who are being critical of this say. But I don't think it's a simple, well, time will tell thing, because right now people are interpreting this. Their worldviews, their theologies are being formed by what they understand is happening right now. And so the whole point of this, again, was not to berate them, not to offer some kind of social commentary, but simply to help people think without hyper-emotionalism, without even being really cynical and just saying, well, I don't like it, so I'm going to doubt it. My goal with these was simply to help you analyze it yourself, to think through it, to apply a biblical worldview and see through more than what you hope it is or what you doubt it is or what media is telling you that it is. Now, I'd like to end this with just a few final notes. The first is that I want to answer an obvious criticism that is going to come to me and that I've already seen popping up online. And that is the idea that it is far easier to criticize Asbury University than to just sit and enjoy and appreciate what's happening and just see what happens in the future. And I've even seen at least one person say that if you're not excited about this, you might not be a Christian. Because how can you have the Holy Spirit if you are not excited about what the Holy Spirit's doing in that town? Now, the first one may have some validity, right? That it is easy to just sit and be cynical and criticize. But taking that position isn't as noble or spiritual as many are making it out to be. And the more that people keep repeating this and regurgitating this argument, the more other people are going to feel compelled to just embrace what's happening regardless of their own reservations or doubts or desire to dig in a little more deeply to try to understand why this might be happening, what other factors are involved causing this to happen. So if you've sat here and if you've listened to it objectively, not just hoping that I will confirm what you already want to believe, not just crossing your arms and wanting to be angry and doubt everything I say. But if you've tried to be objective and listen to the logic, reason, and biblical worldview presented in this episode, it should be evident that none of this is a nitpick or a complaint that people are doing something I don't like. My goal has not been to be dismissive or cynical, but just look beyond the hype and see if there's true substance to what's happening. And I've tested whether this can only be from God, whether this has is almost surely from God, or if people are just settling for something that seems spiritual without filtering it through a biblical worldview. So if you're still here and listening, before you accept what I say because it fits your opinion, or before you reject what I say because it doesn't fit your opinion, I only ask that you honestly weigh what I've said here. See if the things that I have discussed match reality. Remember what 1 John 4, 1 says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Now, the events surrounding Asbury may not be the work of false prophets, but that doesn't mean that it isn't primarily fueled by the worldliness of emotionalism, of social media, 
and a desperate desire for students who live under the shadow of past revivals to see it happen again and therefore latch on to anything that might seem like a revival so they can live out that legacy in their own generation. Now I want to end with a final note of warning and then end on a final note of hope. So the warning is that God has saved or convicted people through these events. I have no doubt of that. Some, and hopefully many, will look back and see Asbury as the beginning of a life that they have surrendered to God. However, as Christians, we cannot say that the ends justify the means. Just because some were saved doesn't mean that we cannot be critical and wary and desire to not repeat what led to all of this happening. Because remember, people are also saved through everything from fearmonger preaching to the prosperity gospel. God has saved many people, or God may save people, despite why Asbury has become such a popular destination for a younger generation. But we cannot look at the results and claim that the methods used to get there are justified. Likewise, we need to be very wary of those who are already trying to reproduce the events of Asbury. So many are going to try to carry the emotional momentum of this event through the country and even the world. And thanks to social media and our own hopelessness or our frustration with our own spiritual lives, many will feel a similar weight of expecting to see God work through an Asbury-like revival in their own church or community. And, predictably, these people are going to fall into frustration or doubt when it either doesn't happen or doesn't feel as real or spiritual as it should. And similarly, those thousands of attendees who think they felt God's presence are going to serve as testimonies to the rest of the world. The things that happened here are no longer just these camp decisions that we joke about in the privacy of our friend groups, where we made this decision, we were on fire for God, and then we came home and were just as wretched as before. Asbury has received national attention. And we have to consider what's going to happen when the fervor and excitement don't extend beyond the emotional music and the viral social media hashtags. The world loves pointing out Christianity as just another life choice that people can make, but that, you know, Christianity, it's just as valid as any other religion that people feel they need. You know, if someone feels like they need a religion, Christianity is an okay option as long as it doesn't infringe on people's rights and happiness. And so, if all these prophetic claims of revival don't break out across America, and especially if those who are on fire a few days for a few days don't see genuine change, the world is going to notice. What we say about this, how we respond to it, matters. But as I said, I want to end on a final note of hope. I know this has been a lot of seemingly, you know, criticism and harshness and just difficult and challenging thinking. And I appreciate that. But as I said, it's easy to just just find the good and just go on about our lives. But I'm not approaching this as just wanting to just throw mud on everything. Because, as I hope you've picked up on through this episode, despite our own impatience at wanting results now, and even the impatience of those at the Asbury Revival who just wanted revival now and wanted to call it revival now, our God is always patiently working out his plan. Whatever failings we may find in the origins, continuations, or fallout from Asbury, we can never forget that we don't rely on human programs or newsworthy events to prove that God is winning, that he is active and alive in the world today. 
And even if and when the world forgets about Asbury in its short-lived revival, and especially if it's not the revival as we often think of it, that doesn't mean that God's not going to use it for his ultimate good. Now, as Christians, we have a few responsibilities that we need to keep in mind as we're closing out this episode. The first is that the world is looking at Christianity with different eyes, and we have an opportunity to accurately explain the gospel and holiness to those who may otherwise not be willing to listen. We also have a responsibility to not only understand why we believe what we believe, but to guide those who are new or immature in the faith so that they don't have to rely on emotionalism for their proof of God in their lives. And lastly, we can eagerly wait to serve God as he uses all of this for his glory. We don't know what needs people are going to have. We don't know how God's going to call us to serve, but we can know that he is going to do something and that we can serve him through it. Now, for some, this may have also showed how much we rely on emotionalism in our spiritual lives. If, if you're someone who's sitting there and you're part of that group who would say, you know, we got swept up in the hype of Asbury. It might reveal that we just don't have a firm understanding of worship or revival, but instead we've let others define it for us. So if that's you, if you got swept up in it and are now kind of tapering off a little bit, then use this event and even this episode to help you grow in your understanding of how God really does work. Or on the flip side, it may have revealed how dismissive we are of anything that is other from our own religious traditions without understanding why we're against it. Many have shown that they don't know why they disagree with what happened in Asbury. They just know that it's different and they don't like it. It's a very grumpy old man kind of theology, right? I've seen this thing. It's weird to me. I don't understand it. So I'm going to say that it's not of God. Now, for that group, this is a wonderful opportunity to learn humility while trying to better understand whether anything is spiritually lacking in Asbury or if it's just our preferences masquerading as spiritual alertness. So to all listeners, if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, embrace this opportunity to understand your own faith, to learn what you believe about revivals and be ready and willing to engage with believers and unbelievers who want to understand more about God. This is our opportunity to represent God to the world. It's not our only opportunity, but it is a unique one. And if you're sitting there, and if you realize that you just aren't ready, you don't know how to engage with people, you don't know how to talk to them about the Bible, then you also get to embrace this opportunity to find a mature Christian willing to help you grow in your own faith. Not just, how do I give the gospel, but how do I understand the deeper things of God? How do I understand the Bible? How do I explain it to someone? How do I take someone who's been saved for two hours and help them grow in their walk with Jesus Christ? This is your opportunity if you're not ready for that. Find someone capable of teaching you and ask them, beg them, to disciple you so that you can then turn around and help those who don't understand their faith. And lastly, I want to encourage all of you to pray for so many people. Pray for the Christians who attended this and made commitments to God. For the new Christians who were genuinely saved and now need guidance as they grow. For the unrepentant people who had a false conversion and still need the truth and not just a false assurance of their salvation. Remember those who are going to feel lost, cold, or even confused 
when time overcomes their high emotional event. Pray for the leaders who feel compelled to manufacture their own revival, and pray for their repentance and wisdom to not do that. Pray for communities who do experience genuine biblical revival through how God uses this. Pray for Christians who are blinded by emotionalism without understanding a biblical worldview. And pray for Christians who are blinded by cynicism without understanding a biblical worldview. In the end, God may not use Asbury in the way social media claims or the way we hope, but that doesn't mean that God won't use it. As faithful followers of Jesus Christ, we want to serve our God however he calls us to. So let's be ready to celebrate those lives that are truly changed by these events. Let's equip those in need of a firm foundation for their faith. Let's comfort those who are left lost or hurting. Let's patiently engage with those that we disagree with. And let's always be ready to explain and defend our faith. I want to leave you with 1 Peter 3, 15-16. But sanctify Christ as Lord in your hearts. Always be ready to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you. Yet, with gentleness and fear, having a good conscience, so that in the thing in which you are slandered, those who disparage your good conduct in Christ will be put to shame. Whatever happens from the results of the Asbury University events, let us as faithful followers of Jesus Christ love him enough to know him, understand him, and desire for those in our communities to know him as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of Onward in the Faith. Make sure you subscribe to the podcast and visit onwardinthefaith.com where you can read hundreds of articles about every area of the Christian life. If this ministry is a blessing to you, there are three ways that you can support it. You can pray for Ray and Onward in the Faith itself. You can share this episode with others, or you can help with various expenses by visiting patreon.com slash onwardinthefaith or following the link in the show notes. We hope this episode has encouraged you to keep moving onward in your faith towards maturity in Christ. 